Let's join together in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as your word directs us today to some thoughts about what the older men are to be taught, thank you that it's not a message just for older men, but it's for all of us because what they're encouraged to do and to be is something that all of us are as well. But specifically, the older men have some things that are tailored for them, some things that uh, perhaps when we look at them in some total are areas where they need the most encouragement, but we all do. So help us as you speak to us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit will help us to listen and apply and live it out. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to Titus chapter 2. We'll be in Titus one more week this year, and then we'll pick up our study in Titus again next year with a a number of Christmas special messages in between. Titus chapter 2, I'd like to read the first two verses. Paul speaking to Titus here, and he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Man who is trying to explain the meaning of the word oratory commented with tongue in cheek, but you'll see that there's some truth to this, a lot of truth. He said this, if you say black is white, that's foolishness. But if while you say black is white, you roar like a bull, pound on the table with both fists, and race from one end of the platform to another, that's oratory. Some would say that's preaching. I like what one writer says, though, about this whole idea. He says, we can quickly be swept off our feet by the way people express themselves, even though we have some questions about their message. Jude warned us about those whose mouths speak great swelling words, or as it says, that's King James Version, or in the ESV, loud mouth boasters. We've been warned against those kinds of people. And he goes on to say, the masses are often moved more by style than by content. According to Paul, the time will come when people will turn away from the truth of sound doctrine and tolerate only those who entertain and make people feel good. That whole idea of sound doctrine, that word sound, we're going to see in its context here this morning. But will you look up those two verses with me in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, because there's a warning there. There's a warning that Paul gives to Timothy. There's a warning that Paul gives to Titus. There's a warning that God gives to all of us in light of those other two warnings. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It is a warning for all of us. It says, for the time is coming when people will not endure, and here's the word sound again, will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Itching ears. We want somebody to scratch where we itch. We want somebody to tell us what we want to hear. That time will come more and more when sound 
doctrine. That which is included in God's Word will be laid aside because people will want to hear only what they want to hear. I think we can all see that. We can see that in our society, in our culture. We can see that in our churches where more and more it's try to say nothing that will ever offend anybody. Always say what you think people want to hear. Always backpedal when you need to so as not to offend anybody. We don't want to be viewed as intolerant or politically incorrect. Well, the writer goes on after referring to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He goes on to say, so we must carefully analyze and evaluate in the light of the Scriptures everything we hear, even what is taught and proclaimed by the most eloquent of speakers. We must not allow ourselves to be swayed by mere oratory, especially in the church. We need to be sure that the Bible teachers we listen to are speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. That's 1 Timothy 2.7 where Paul said, that's not me. I'm not one of those. And then don't let empty talkers and deceivers, that's Titus 1.10 and we've seen that before. Don't let empty talkers and deceivers confuse you. Eloquence is never a substitute for truth. And neither is volume. And neither is passion. Somebody can say something very, very passionately. And sometimes we say, I I wish we had speakers who were more passionate. But that doesn't mean a thing unless that passion is accompanied by truth. So look here with me again at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Titus was instructed, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. As for you, you can see on the screen, if you're able to see the screen, that the you is emphatic there. It's emphatic in the scriptures here. It's an emphatic position in the Greek language. The you is in contrast with those who have been spoken about already in chapter 1. The Pharisees, the legalistic, Gnostic, false teachers described at length in chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. If you go back with me to chapter 1, verse 9 for a moment. A mark of the elder or overseer the church leader, a mark of them, must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's what it says in verse 9. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. No, we're not always trying to just keep the peace and not hurt anybody's feelings. If somebody's bringing something that's not true, that individual needs to be confronted. That's exactly what it says. Needs to be rebuked. Why? Look at verse 10. If we see in verse 10 once again, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, those who wanted to keep everybody holding on to the Jewish rites and rituals. Well, what is to be done with those empty talkers? What is to be done with those deceivers? Verse 11, they must be silenced. Verse 13, They must be rebuked sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Then if you'll notice in verse 16, the stinging indictment against those false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Look at the fruit. Look at what's going on in their lives. They are, this is reality, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now we're back to chapter 2, verse 1. What does it mean that Titus is to teach sound doctrine? 
We've seen that word several times already this morning. Sound is from the Greek word hugiaino, from which we get our word hygiene. And we're familiar with hygiene. It all has to do with sound health. To be well physically, to be well in body, it's used of that, but it's also used figuratively or in a metaphorical sense to be uncorrupt, to be true in doctrine, to be spiritually healthy, to be spiritually well. And that's what's important. Sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. In Luke 5.31, Jesus uses that very word, hugiaino. He uses that word, Jesus answered them, those who are well. And that's that word. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I'd like to say something here, too, about sound doctrine. Sometimes when we hear the word doctrine, we think of something that is dull and boring and not very practical. But sound doctrine is very practical. We can see it here in this sense here in Titus chapter 2, verse 1. It's not just something that is cerebral. It's not just something to be thought about, to be calculated, to be put in an organized form so that we can teach people point after point after point and they've got it in their heads. It's not just for theologians and scholars when we talk about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is not impractical. Sound doctrine tells us how we should be living our lives. Look here at the passage before us at how it demonstrates its practicality. Titus has been told, you're not to be like those that we've just described. You're to teach sound doctrine. And that teaching is going to encompass everyone, not just the theologians and the scholars. And we see that in what follows. All ages, both genders are there, starting with older men. But look at the subjects that follow. If you glance, as I mentioned this, you glance down at the text in chapter 2, verse 1 is a general introduction of practical, relevant, life-changing commands to some very specific groups of Christians. Older men, in verse 2, older women, but spilling over to younger women, in verses 3 through 5, young men in verses 6 through 8, slaves in verses 9 through 10, everyone brought back into the picture in verses 11 through 14, and then there's this personal charge in verse 15 to Titus, declare these things. Yes, it's sound doctrine, but it is not impractical. It's something that all of us need to live our lives. It's not just a system of truth here. It's how we're to live every moment. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So the sound doctrine that is to be taught to these people affects every area of their everyday lives. You can't get any more relevant than that. Well, I'd like to do a word association with you right now. I'd like to do this every once in a while. I'm going to suggest something, and then I'm going to ask you to think about the first word that comes into your mind, and then I'm going to ask some of you who are bold and daring to share that with us. (coughs) Here are actually it's two words that I want you to associate with. You with me? Okay, everybody with me so far? 
There is a politically correct way to say these two words, and there's uh, not so politically correct. So you can think of either one. I'm going to put one of them on the screen, and that would be older men, first thing that comes to mind, or old men, if you prefer the other way. Old men, older men, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Who wants to share something with this? Geezer. Okay. Could you say that into my microphone so it doesn't look like I'm saying? Steve Dara. Thank you. I had no part of that. (laughs) Retired or tired? Retired. Okay, both. Tired and retired. Okay. Um, Somebody else? Older men. Grandpa. That was, we had another grandpa coming over here. Elderly. Gray hair. Wisdom. Curmudgeon? <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Okay, now, you have to be honest with me. Anything like this come to your mind? Any, anything like that come to mind? Put your hand up if anything like pictures worth a thousand words. Any similarity that this figure has to our sometimes percussionist up here is strictly coincidental, or to our building administrator, or what's his, what's his title? I forget. Anyway, it's all coincidental. Uh, coming with that picture are a lot of words. Um, crotchety, cranky, grouchy, stern, severe. This is what we don't want to come out of this passage for us. The the antithesis is here before us. So we're going to look at the teaching with regard to the older men that's in accord with sound doctrine. Titus was given that charge. This is sound doctrine, but it's very, very practical, and we're going to see that in just a moment. The word for older men was used in ancient Greek literature of men as young as 50. If you, some people say young as 50, young and 50, those two words don't correlate in my mind. It's the Greek word presbutes, different than presbuteros. Presbuteros is the word for the office of elder. This is presbutes. It's similar, but it's talking about older men. It's used twice in the New Testament. It's used once in Luke chapter 1, verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I'm an old man, he said, and the scripture bears that out, way beyond childbearing years. And in Philemon chapter 1, verse 9, the apostle Paul makes a claim to being an old man. He says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So Paul was in his 60s at that time, and he claimed to be an old man then. So that means... Biblically, when we're talking about older men here, we could probably be on safe ground to say that's anybody 50 years of age and older. But I know some old men in their 30s, don't you? Um, I know some older men, anyway, in their 30s. And if all goes well and the Lord spares you, every male in here at one time or another will be an older man. So this is relevant. It's also relevant because some of these same qualities are listed for all of us, regardless of gender and age, all throughout the Scripture. So this is just a reminder, particularly for the older men, who may need the reminder more often maybe than some of the rest of us for these particular virtues. Six of them 
that are to be reinforced with the older men. The first one is to be sober-minded, it says. Nephalios in the Greek language, sober-minded, means actually, literally, sober. That was how they used it at that particular time. Abstaining from wine, that sense. Clear-headed. In a metaphorical sense, it means to be sober and wary, to be cool and unimpassioned. Uh, It doesn't mean you can't have passion, but uh, not in the bad sense, not in the overboard sense. It's translated in some of the other translations that are available to us today as temperate, sober, level-headed, and exercising self-control, which we're going to see as a separate category, and you'll see a lot of overlap in some of these terms. There is a composite picture that emerges, though, of somebody who is to be well-respected, and we could almost come right back to one of the qualifications for an overseer or an elder. It's somebody that's to be above reproach in his temperament and his attitudes as well. It's used twice more in the pastoral epistles, the word nephalios. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, of an overseer who must be above reproach, as we've studied, husband of one wife, and here it is sober-minded in addition to some of those other qualities that are there. So it's used in Timothy of an overseer, but it's also used in Timothy for the wives of the deacons. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So you can see that these qualities go across the board. They're not just for older men. They're for all of us. And some of the wives of the deacons could have been younger women, so they could have been older women. Uh, there's no real distinction being made in the Scriptures that all of us are supposed to be sober-minded. But here the older men are to be taught to become mature. They're no longer impetuous. They're no longer rash. They have a role to play, and that role to play is that they're to be examples to the rest of us. They're not to be discarded either, not by themselves and not by others. There's no older man in here who should be able to say to himself, you know what, I'm too old to do anything for the Lord. I'm out the pasture. I'll leave it up to the younger men. And there shouldn't be any younger men saying, these people are too old. We don't need them anymore. Their ideas are too old. They're, they're, they're old-fashioned in, in the worst sense. Uh, but that's not what the Lord is calling us to do. Older men are to be, first of all, sober-minded. Secondly, they're to be dignified. King James translates the Greek word semnos here as grave. Who wants to be grave? I don't think anybody really wants to be grave. Maybe that carries too strong a meaning as as translated in the King James Version. Consider some other words. These are synonyms for it. Venerable. That sounds better than grave, right? Venerable, honorable, august, reverend, serious, to be venerated for character. It's translated as worthy of respect in three of my favorite translations. So dignified, worthy of respect. If you're an older man here in the church, or you will be, or you want to look to the example of older men, another good quality to be dignified. The Believer's Bible Commentary, I think, qualifies this a little bit. They say here, that these individuals, these older men, should be reverent and dignified, yes, but please, not gloomy. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that you always have to look like you're just coming 
or going from the dentist's office. Um, that's not that's not the picture that is supposed to be there. Age makes some people callous, bitter, and cynical. Actually, age doesn't do it, but people do it to themselves over a period of time. Those who are healthy in faith are thankful, optimistic, and good company. That's part of that idea of worthy of respect. We want you men to be the people that we want to look up to, that we want to emulate. We want your attitudes and your temperament to be the ones that we have and that we grow in until we become like you are and you're not some crotchety, cranky old man. That's not what the Scriptures teach. That's not what anybody's helped by for you to be able to be the kind of person that the Lord is describing here for us. This word dignified is used of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. And deacons are not all older men. It's used for a third time in 1 Timothy 3.11, once again of the deacons' wives. Not the elders' wives, but of the deacons' wives. Both the deacons and their wives are to be worthy of respect or dignified. So you can see how much overlap there is here. And even though older men are being addressed, the same words are used for all of us in the Scriptures. Older men are statesmen. Older men are those who command that respect. They're on display as people we can look up to. They're not to go the way of the caricature of grumpy old men. They're not to allow their years to be an excuse for improper living. Yeah, I can speak my mind. I can say whatever I want to say. I don't have to be at all tactful any longer because I have an excuse. My excuse is that I'm, I'm old. And old people can get away with that sort of thing. Now, older men have choices. Do you want to be pitied, ignored, or respected? That choice is yours. Older men are to be taught to be worthy of respect. So far, older men are to be sober-minded, they're supposed to be dignified, and they're also supposed to be self-controlled. Greek word sophron, meaning safe or sound in mind. And then we've got that word sound again that that floats through almost everything that is here. Sane, some people uh, classify this, in one's senses. Somebody who's in his own senses. Curbing one's desires and impulses. Possessing self-mastery in thought and judgment. It's translated elsewhere as sensible or to live wisely. It's being able to put the brakes on or shift to a lower gear when our selfish desires or hormones are stepping on the gas pedal. Do you see that picture in your mind? Let me say that again. Being able to put the brakes on or to shift to a lower gear when our selfish desires or hormones are stepping on the gas pedal. Sometimes we need to turn off the ignition switch, come to a complete stop. Now, this one must be very important. must be very important because it's mentioned several other times in Titus, and we we talked about this before one time. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 1, the elders are told that they're supposed to be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 5, older women teaching younger women to be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 6, regarding the young men, they're supposed to be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 12, regarding all of us, we're all supposed to have that self-control. Obviously, God recognizes that we are skimpy on brake fluid in our lives. 
we're skimpy on that brake fluid when we need to put the brakes on. Sometimes we're not too good at that, but that's what self-control is all about. That's the picture that comes out of the Scriptures. All of us are to be self-controlled. None of us should be impulsively giving in to our passions, our lusts, our strong desires. You may recognize this as a, a picture of Alexander the Great. He might like that picture, but he would probably like a picture like that even better. Alexander the Great was the ruler of Macedonia at the age of 16. He was a victorious general at 18. He was a king at the age of 20. And then he died a drunkard before the age of 33. He had conquered the then known world, but he couldn't conquer himself. And he couldn't conquer himself because he lacked self-control. How did his end come? He began a second night's carousal with 20 guests at a table in Babylon. He drank to the health of every person at the table. After that, he called for Hercules' cup, which had a huge capacity. Filling it, he drank it all down, drinking to Proteus, a Macedonian in his company. Then he pledged to him again in the same extravagant cup and instantly fell to the floor. Fever-stricken, a few days later, he was dead. Alcohol, poison. Conquered the whole world. Didn't have the self-control to conquer his own lusts and desires. Self-control, we add to our list, and we add another one now. Sound in faith, it says. And that word sound covers the next three words. Sound in faith. Again, the idea of healthy. Sound in faith could refer to the body of truth. That faith is the body of truth, that kind of faith, or it could be the personal faith they have in the Lord Jesus, but soundness is great in both of those areas. In the context of this book, we're all called to teach sound doctrine and to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Anybody recognize what's on the screen right now? What is that? Swiss Army knife almost in unison. Um, Swiss Army knife, because everybody knows what a Swiss Army knife is. Carl Elsener, a Swiss designer of surgical equipment back in the 19th century, worked for years on perfecting a military knife. And today his Swiss Army knife is associated with excellence in blades and a variety of utilities. One model includes knife blades, a saw, scissors, a magnifying glass, a can opener, a screwdriver, a ruler, a toothpick, a writing pen, and more, all in one knife, and all in one knife that you can put in your pocket. If you're out camping in the wild, this one item can certainly make you feel equipped for survival. We need something to equip us to survive spiritually in this sinful world. God has given to us His Word, a kind of spiritual knife. For our soul, a sword in reality, or a bunch of swords. And we all know 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We all know the equipping that comes from that Word of God, where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped, for every good work. 
So it's something that we use in our equipping. It's the Word of God. It's what helps us to be sound in faith. But it tells us specifically that we have teaching. And what is teaching from God's Word? It's what is right. But we also have reproof. That's when we're not right. And that happens too. But God's Word also has correction. That's how to get right. So we want what is right. We want to know what to do when we're not right and how to get right. And then we have training how to stay right. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. There's not a more valuable tool than God's Word to make us fully equipped for spiritual survival and personal growth. Fifthly, we're to be sound in love. The older men, sound in love. In all kinds of love. That's love for God. That's love for others. It's love for family. And I'm not going to dwell on this because the Bible conference covered all these aspects about love. The greatest, the greatest of these is love. And we saw the great commandment. We saw all kinds of greats, but invariably they came back to loving God and loving each other. So that brings us to our last characteristic or quality that the older men are to be taught. Sound doctrine. Add to their faith. This is sound in steadfastness. It's the Greek word hupomone. It's one of my favorite words. I love this. And some of you have heard me talk about hupomone, and you know what's coming next. What's the next picture that's going to be on the screen? Does anybody know? A ball bearing will be one of them. There are three, actually, that are going to be coming up. What's what's Watermelon seed and eggshells. So you'll see, they'll be up there in just a moment. Hupomone, perseverance or endurance. It has to do with remaining under pressure without giving up or giving in. Do you know it's not easy to be an older man? Take it from me. I've read about it. And it's not easy to be an older man. You, you can take the physical, but there's an accumulation of all the other things, the emotional things that build up and build up over the years. It is not easy to be an older man. A lot of older men give up and give in. But this whole idea of remaining under pressure without trying to run away, without crashing under the weight of it and getting, getting crushed by all of that, so we go to our watermelon seed, hupomone. This is how we are not to be. You take a watermelon seed and you put it under pressure. You pinch it between your fingers. What happens to the watermelon seed? It squirts out. It goes elsewhere. It doesn't remain under pressure well at all. If you're trying to clean up a table and you're trying to pick one of them up, they're annoying, aren't they? They're annoying because you can't get them. You've got you've to wipe them up, or if you want to take a whole lot of time, then you can pick them up individually. But that's how we're not to be under pressure. We're not to run away from the pressure. Nor are we to allow the pressure to weigh us down and to crush us like these eggshells that are pictured. What we should be able to do under pressure is to be ball bearings and to be able to take the pressure, take the weight, and then be able to handle it well and even use it for good. 
these ball bearings accomplish a lot of good. Things are able to be moved a whole lot easier under the pressure these ball bearings actually accomplish what they're supposed to do, what they're designed to be. A man by the name of Lyman Bryson wrote this. He said, The error of youth is to believe that intelligence is a substitute for experience, while the error of age is to believe that experience is a substitute for intelligence. We kind of have a collision there, don't we? Um, we do have that, and it, it, it comes about a lot. Sometimes we talk about a generation gap. Uh, well, it's that collision of some of these ideas. I'd like to suggest for all of us, this is God's Word. It's addressed to help us in the church, in our lives, in everything, every, every place we are. In our churches, we need the optimism and enthusiasm of youth, and we need the experience and the wisdom of age. One tempers the other. And we need to be on the same team. We don't need to be combatants. It doesn't have to be, here we are on this side and here they are on the other side. We need to be working together, this teamwork. So let me say this. If you're an older man, please don't quit on the rest of us because the rest of us are not like you, probably, at this stage of your life. If you're not an older man, don't quit on us either. We need you. We all need each other desperately. And we're going to be seeing some qualities that are going to be given to each one of us. But as for you, Titus was told, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Not dry paperwork, book learning only kind of things. Here's where the practicality comes in. Older men are to be, and this is what you're to be teaching, Titus. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We need that in the church. We need that in our homes. We need those people to look up to. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for teamwork. Thank you for the older men who are present here with us. Thank you for all of the rest of us who grant to them the honor and respect and veneration that they deserve. But I pray that they would make it easy for us to give them that honor and respect and veneration. Make it easy for us by living according to the pattern that is here, that is sound doctrine, very practical sound doctrine. Thank you for the way in which so many ways your word tells us how we should be walking. Help us never to ignore that. Help us each one to be what you want us to be, what you've called us to be. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.